Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good morning, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings. I think it's episode 36 today as we uh, get another week started on a Monday. Today's going to be one of those episodes where I say I don't do politics, and some people are going to say it's politics, and it's not politics. And if you think it's politics, you're actually probably one of the people that I'm doing this for. Uh, we're going to talk today about how the modern global warming religion, and I know that's going to really trigger some people. I'm sorry, it is a religion because it's not really based on real science. Because the first reason I can give you that it's not based on real science is if it's real science, when somebody objects to what you're saying, you have rigorous scientific fact-based debate. They are not silenced. They are not shut down. They are not written off. A proper response to anything that claims to be a scientific claim is never, infinity never, the science itself. Because that's not how science works. Now, I'm not here to give you a lesson in science today. So we're going to leave it at that. But if you think that there's anything that, that you can call settled science, especially when you're dealing in the realm of theory versus scientific law, then you need to do your own self-education as to what the scientific method and scientific processes are and what the origin of science was in the first place. Because the entire purpose of the, the discipline that we call science is to never say that something just is, or never take any explanation on its face and always require rigor and always require that we understand that even a valid scientific theory can be proven wrong in the future. So I'll leave it at that. I want to come at this from a different angle, though. Let's say I'm wrong. Let's say that I am wrong and that the air you exhale and your CO2 out of your tailpipe of your car and all that other stuff is actually raising the temperature of the planet. I'll just put that, okay, I'm wrong. I don't think I am, but I'm going to make my case as though I'm wrong and what I'm saying makes sense anyway, which is the point. My contention is that the worst thing that's ever happened to environmentalism, because I am an environmentalist, just because I don't practice your faith does not mean I'm not an environmentalist. I am probably far more of a proactive environmentalist than plenty of, plenty of people that say I hate the planet or something like that because of my stance on this one issue. But... We have entered a place now where people have been through the political process divided into two camps, anti and pro, on this issue, which makes no sense at all. Because almost everybody, there are some sick, twisted individuals, but almost everybody agrees that pollution's bad, right? That turning places that are not deserts into deserts is bad. That dumping garbage into our ocean is bad. That pumping out things like mercury and sulfur through the use of fossil fuels like coal into our atmosphere is bad. There's like so many things that we agree upon. And what triggered this episode of Miyagi Mornings was I did a uh, video that I uploaded over the weekend called Green Gold, which is a documentary featuring John D. Liu, 
and the work he's done around the world to restore entire ecosystems, in case some ecosystems that are the size of small states in the United States, proving that it actually works. And there is some significant mention throughout this of carbon cycle, little tiny bit of climate change, enough that I don't care, and if I don't care, you shouldn't care. But one of the commenters on that video after I published it was, it would be pretty good if it wasn't for all the carbon nonsense in it. Excuse me? How is the carbon mentioned, the concept of sequestering carbon from the atmosphere into the soil nonsense? Do you deny the existence of the carbon cycle? Do you think you can have a healthy soil if carbon isn't being ongoingly put into the soil? Because you can't. Do you understand that one of the greatest environmental catastrophes, I would say it's the number one, but I'll say I don't even have to be, I cannot even be challenged with saying it's the top five environmental catastrophes is what we do with modern agriculture. The whole system of modern agriculture global, globally is one of the largest producers of greenhouse gases and pollution and damage to our ecosystems that, ha, that not only exists, but that it has ever existed in human history. It is a massive polluter and a master, massive destroyer of ecosystems. Okay, Doesn't mean we can't farm. Doesn't mean we can't grow things. It means that we need to farm in a way that takes carbon out of the air and puts it into the soil. How do we do that? Number one way we can do that are grazing systems that are properly managed that use uh, herbivores and specifically ruminants like cattle, sheep, goats, etc., moving through that system, cycling that organic matter into waste and back into the soil. And if we plant lots of trees and we do a civil posture model, it works even better. There's nothing that humans can do that takes more carbon out of the atmosphere and puts it into the soil other than a civil pasture-based, you know, savanna mimicry uh, grazing system. It is the gold standard. And all the actual science, real science, where real data is collected analyzed and reported honestly says so. There are systems that do it better that are natural systems, but they can't exist everywhere. They are systems like saltwater marsh mangrove systems do it better. Like that's the only one that does it better. So this is what we should be doing to repair our topsoil, to improve our environment, to reduce the runoff of nutrient into our rivers and streams and oceans and lakes. Right? This is what we should be doing. Now, if I'm not wrong about AGW, we should still be doing this. If I am wrong about AGW, we should still be doing this. Why don't you hear anything about it? Why don't you hear anything except we should all live on soy, which is a toxin to human beings when eaten in the quantities they want you to eat it in any way. And animals are bad. Because that's what they want. Because if you can take a commodity like soy or corn or wheat that can be stored in a silo, Versus animals that need actual husbandry and care by human beings, you can control a population. And the best thing in the world to control a population is division. This is my summation here. And I, I deal in facts and opinion. This is going to sound like opinion. This is factual. I could put together a 20-point plan to improve the environment on this planet to, to reduce pollution into our oceans to stop the exportation of topsoil in the form of runoff. No nation, no society, no civilization has ever survived exporting its topsoil. Annual agriculture, the way it's practiced today, is the exportation of topsoil. You will collapse a society if you do that. I could put together a 20-tenant plan that would work, and with limited education, 
80% or more of people in our country would say, that makes sense. We should do that. They could do it too. But they don't. They continue to divide you on this misguided belief that you exhaled and now you are contributing to the temperature of planet Earth. This doesn't make any sense. But again, even if it's true, taxing oil and coal won't fix that problem. Build all the windmills you want. And as long as you're still eroding the most productive topsoil in the world and washing it into the ocean and lacing it with mined minerals in the form of NPK fertilizer, it won't fix the problem. Even if we should tax coal, even if we should tax oil, even if we should suppress carbon emissions through financial policy, which I don't think we do, but even if we should, all the things that I'm telling you that most people with common sense would agree to would do more, even if I'm wrong. So why don't you hear it? Again, because they want you divided. They want you controlled. When you start having people say things like, I don't believe in environmentalism, It's very disturbing to me. I had neighbors at my place in Arkansas. These people lived in the mountains. They loved the environment. They did all types of things that were very environmentalist. But I was talking to them one day, and they said, well, I don't believe in environmentalism. What? And what it came down to is, well, I don't believe in global warming, but now I've taken all of this common-sense environmental policy, and I've lumped it in with these crazy people, and then I've written it all off. Likewise, there'll be people, I can tell you right now, Down in the comments section of this video, you're thinking evil, you're still for the oil company and some stupid ass shit like that. Like, as though Exxon gives a flying shit what Jack Spiracle has to say. As though Exxon's my friend, you morons. Come on. Right? Not listening to what's actually being said because just like my friends in Arkansas who were divided to the right side of an issue that should even be political, you're divided to the left side of the issue. And the people that are running the show, it's what they absolutely want from you. They want you hating your friends and family who disagree with you and joining your little cult. They don't care which side of the cult you pick as long as you're on either side because then they get to continue the wholesale destruction of our planet that you claim to oppose unabated and they pander to you with stupid shit. And this is, this is how you know it's a religion. What you say is more important than what you do in many religions. What you profess is more important than your actions. That's how you know you're dealing in the world of religion versus science. I live my life with an incredibly small environmental footprint compared to people who are screeching and yelling about global warming. What I do does not matter to them as much as what I say. You're not in a world of logic in that place, folks. You can't be. Well, we should be doing all these things. Well, he does all these things. Yes, but he says the wrong word, so he's bad. We have to cease this behavior. And the only way we can cease this behavior, we have to stop acting like a bunch of dumb-ass bulls with rings in our nose, being drugged around on a lead by masters. If you care about the environment, start a garden. If you care about the environment, start taking care of small livestock in a way that makes environmental sense. Take the waste streams and process it into compost and put it back into the soil and start sequestering carbon in your own backyard and instead of expecting that we're going to fix this by making coal companies trap carbon from their emissions when they burn coal and letting the mercury and sulfur still go into our groundwater and fuck everything up. Stop thinking that's a solution because it's not. And start looking at what you can do. 
This is, this is why this works. We're in a society today where people don't want to be saddled with a responsibility in their actions. They want somebody else to do it for them, and they want somebody else to enforce their will on others for them, and that's violence by proxy, folks. That's what that is. When you say this person should have to behave this way, and if they don't, armed men with guns should go make them do it, that is violence by proxy. In other words, you don't have the balls to enforce that yourself, but you're totally comfortable with people doing it on your behalf as though you're not responsible for the violence. Right? That's where we end up with this type of thinking. When we start saying, well, okay, there's all these things that are wrong. What can I do? Right out the back door, guys. That's what you can do. And it's up to you to do it. And until you realize, and again, I don't care what you believe about global warming. Until you realize that even if you're on the opposite side from me, and even if you're right, it's being used by the people that are controlling you to divide you from people like me who are your willing allies. 99% of what you want to do, I'm not only willing to do it, I'm already doing it in my own life. But I'm your enemy. If you want to, and, and I'm telling you guys, this goes way past environmentalism. This is the, capital T-H-E, the system of control in the modern world. And this is one of those ones that the more emotion, and that's how they always do it, they gin the emotion up. If you're angry at me right now for what I've said, you're focusing on my words versus my actions. You're angry at an ally and you're, you're supporting an enemy. Because I promise you, The work I've done, the work I've done, and, and the things I've shared, and the things I've taught, and the people I've inspired, has, has we've done back-of-the-napkin calculations, over 5 million trees have been planted from the work we do at TSP. 5 million. That's conservative. Tens of thousands of gardens. Tens of thousands of composting systems. And that's just getting started. And if you're mad at me, because you don't like what I said, how is that scientific? It isn't. It's up to you guys. I just implore you, start focusing on solutions. Because the things your TV's telling you, the things that, if you're, if you're depending on the government to fix the problem that their policies caused in the first place, I'll just end with that's about as unscientific as it gets, guys. Hey guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 37, I believe we're up to today. <clears throat> Once again, for those watching the video versus listening to the recap podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, I am indoors. It's cold. I'm not out. I'm not indoors because I'm afraid of the cold though. It's, it's windy again. It's been crazy. We've had like bipolar weather this last week where It's like low 30s in gusting winds of over 20 miles an hour, sustained winds in the teens um, all morning long. And then you work all morning and you, if you're me anyway, you get to the point where it's like you got a couple hours of daylight left and you, you throw a big heavy Carhartt jacket on. Uh, somebody asked about my jacket in the last video. It's probably the one you were asking about. The Carhartt is who makes that. And you go outside and the first thing you do is like, oh my God, and you take it off because it's like in the 60s. It's, it's nuts. Anyway, I want to talk to you about land access today. And I kind of talked about this a bunch over the, these episodes, but it occurred to me the last time I talked about it, I didn't really get into the part of it I wanted to, which is the difference between access to land and land ownership. And this is, I think, a big sticking place for people. You don't have to own land to have access to lots of land or significant land or more land than you can use. And so there are... A variety of ways. I think I have seven here for you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight ways 
to gain access to land. I'm going to start out with the one that I actually like the least. Unless you have a really strong bond with partners, and then you still need to have everything that could possibly occur written down in a contract, everybody needs to go home. And This is before you even talk about the land itself. You're going to look for land with a group, right? Everything that can happen must be put in a contract. Every party in the agreement must read the contract and not like a congressman reads a bill. Like actually read, understand, and discuss each thing. And anything that could be a matter of argument or dispute, have the argument or dispute prior to executing the agreement so that if it's not going to work, everyone just say, you know, this isn't going to work, it doesn't work for me. Maybe you have four or five people and one or two are like, this doesn't work for me and the other ones can go ahead, but everybody has to be clear. And then, so that would be obviously collective land ownership. This is a, a valid option. Again, I find partnerships to almost always have problems. And I find that when people enter into partnerships that have never been in business and never dealt with partnerships in business, it almost always ends badly. Because you assume things that just are not the case. And even when you have been through them, a lot of times you don't enter them because of what you've learned in the process. But this is valid, and I just thought it would be not responsible to leave it off the list. But it would be my least desirable way to do so. Unless you have the right people and the right agreement and the right situation, and then it can and does work. And every single thing I'm going to give you today does work because I've watched people do it. And if somebody can do it and they're a human and you're a human, then you can probably do it too. As crazy as that's, I know that sounds insane that you can do anything that any other person can do within reason, right? Like anybody can learn to pay, play a piano. Anybody can learn to play a guitar, but some people will be better at it than others because of natural talent and ability. But anybody can learn to do it. So anybody can put together an agreement and find the right people and get into collective property ownership is one way to have access to land. The next way, which is far less problematic because if something goes wrong, you just stop using that piece and find another piece, is spin farming. And I'm separating spin farming from land leasing because it's usually done at a much smaller scale and it's, it's done in a different manner. Often the payment is simply a portion of the, the, uh, the production. So spin farming, if you just look it up, S-P-I-N, farming, you can find countless examples of people doing this. And this is generally done in suburban and urban areas where many of you say you can't leave. Well, you could be accessing land right where you are. This is where I come to you and I say, hey, I'm a local urban farmer. I've noticed you have a large backyard you're not doing anything with. That little space over there could be five, six, eight, whatever it is, rows. Here's what they look like where I've done it before. Here's how I maintain them. Here's an agreement that I have. Would you consider possibly letting me you know, basically grow a garden uh, in your backyard in return for X dollars plus produce or just pro whatever it is? And like I said, there's, there's so much information on that that if you actually want to pursue that or at least consider the pursuit of that, Do your own research. It's all there, and there are people who have built entire livelihoods teaching others how to do it, so I'll leave it at that. The next one is leasing. Leasing is a great way to control huge amounts of land, and generally I find that the best way to lease land in this model is for livestock. Uh, cattle probably being one of the best because a lot of landowners understand cattle. They understand what it means to have cattle on their land. 
and with portable infrastructure. And I would recommend reading the, 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 the works of Joel Salatin on this. With portable infrastructure, you can easily pick up your farm and move to another piece of land. One of the most successful ranchers out there is a gentleman named Greg Judy. I really recommend you look up his stuff. He's in uh, Missouri, I believe. And uh, he controls thousands of acres, but he only owns a very small piece of land. He's incredibly successful. He's incredibly profitable. He, his primary means of revenue is he puts cattle on land and manages their movements. So this is where you have to start thinking like the rich versus the poor. The rich want to control things. Sometimes that means ownership. Sometimes it doesn't, but they want control. Poor people always want to own shit. That's why they stay poor. Not everything that you have should be owned. Some things that make sense and some things that doesn't. It's like a tool. There are things that a screwdriver does well like turn a screw. There are things that screwdrivers can do sort of okay, like pry something open, and there's things that screwdrivers are shitty for, like hammering a nail. So you use the right tool for the right job. You use ownership versus control mechanisms depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But that's something else you can look into. Next up is leasing with the option to purchase. If you do have the desire to eventually own land, it is often the case that you can lock in the purchase price of a piece of land over a, a term, like let's say five years with an option to buy at the end, based on the current market value. That way if real estate market prices go up, and they usually do, not always, well then you can execute that buy offer, it will be easier to obtain financing, and generally some portion, though not very much, of your lease goes toward the purchase. That's a lease with an option to buy with the lease crediting some of the purchase value, lease the purchase option. That's another thing that you can look at. And a lot of times, there are landowners who want to eventually sell land, but it's not a good time for them to sell They want to lock in that ability, and if nothing else, they'll get that revenue over three to five years in that lease with an option to purchase. And then if the market takes a shit, and sometimes it does, and the value of that property declines, you're not required to execute the offer at the end, but they're required to accept it if you do. It gives you options out. That's another way that you can acquire land. Next up would be managing a co-op or buyer's club where you don't even manage or run or control the land. You simply see to the distribution of the proceeds from it if we're in an ag space because this doesn't always have to be agricultural. But if that's the space you want to be in, I hear people all the time, well, what I'm going to do, man, I'm going to get 40 acres, I'm going to have a market garden, I'm going to have a food forest, I'm going to have all this stuff, and then I'm going to sell direct to the consumer. Why don't you do that now? Why don't you get yourself a little used van, put together a good catalog, contact all the growers in your area, and then start building business for them. How much can you produce, at what frequency, how often, and how much can you scale, and what price do you need so that I can put this stuff in a, into a business offering catalog, and I can go out and acquire customers for both of us. Now you're actually, in, in a way, exercising control over broad amounts of land in production, by becoming the distributor. And that might actually make you some money, and then maybe you can stop bitching about not having money, and then maybe the land that you do want to own, you can go either buy directly or use one of these other options. So that's another option that you have. Next up would be foraging. So maybe what you look for is you find a small, affordable place that you can live, your little urban homestead, but then you strategically locate that next to land that is publicly accessible, and then you learn how to freaking forage and hunt and fish and gather. It's actually not that hard. When I was a kid, I knew places that are still around, and I guarantee you the stuff's still there, where I could go and load up. For instance, I could load the back of a pickup truck almost full with a mushroom at one point in a year called ram's heads. 
These are also known as metakis. They're extremely expensive. Even back in the 80s, you could walk into any corner bar and say, hey, I've got, I've got ram's head mushrooms, and get $10 a pound on a bar top from your buddies if you had these things. And there were so many other things that we used to hunt, fish, and forage. So you can either make that part of a holistic plan where you're also doing things on your property, or it could be your primary means. So now you have access to tremendous amounts of what you would call the commons back in the day, but you're using it from your one little base. That's another option. You live somewhere, you could live there. Next up would be uh, work agreements with portable housing, like tiny houses on wheels or RVs. Uh, this is something that's being done probably more now than it's ever been done in history. Uh, I know people personally. I've had guests on my show doing this where they build their high. Uh, I can't ever say it right, but Ariel at Fee North or Nith or something. It's some Scandinavian name. She's on MeWe. She's awesome. She's on YouTube. She's awesome. And she has this little tiny house that she built. I think she's in Wyoming. And she has an agreement with the landowner. She cups some wood, and she does these other things. And it's not a tremendous amount of work, but in return, she has a place to put her place. She even has some electric. I think she's off-grid mostly, but she does have some electric. Uh, she's able to use wood for heating her home, which is not much, in addition to what she's cutting for the landowner. She has access to be able to, to, to hunt and gather. She has access to be able to garden. And that's just one person. There's multiple ways to make those agreements. There's plenty of people with large swaths of land that can't be there, that would love someone that they could trust there as security. There might even be places like that that have small dwellings on them that they would let you live in for very little money in return for doing some work. And I'm not even trying, and that's eight ways. And this is why I say, and this is why some of you get mad when I say quit being a whiny little bitch and saying what you can't do. The worst drug epidemic to come along in the history of mankind, I think, is Icantium. Seriously, some of you guys are addicted to Icantium. There's also Hopium and Copium, but today we're talking about Icantium. It's so easy for you. Oh, shut the fuck up, easy for me. You weren't there when I was sleeping in the back of my fucking pickup truck when I was in my early 20s to save some of my per diem when I was on the road making 14 fucking dollars an hour for busting my fucking ass traveling all over the fucking country, just to be fucking blunt here at the end. Quit your shit, quit your bitching. I just gave you eight ways to overcome this obstacle, and I know exactly what many of you who have been on the ICANN team are saying in response to all of them, but, but is your ass. Quit shoving your head up and get on with living your life. If this is something you want, go make it happen and stop telling me why you can't do it. Because this is where I get pissed off and this is why I quit consulting years ago. People tell you what their problem is, you give them multiple solutions and all they do is talk themselves out of them. If that's you, I can't help you. If it's not you and you've needed a kick in the ass, today maybe I've spurred something and you know what? There's countless other ways to do this. My goal in giving you this list wasn't so you go do one of them. My goal in giving you this list is to turn this computer on It's up here in your cranium so that you'll figure out what you need to do to get what you want. Take care. I'll be back tomorrow. Hey, guys. Welcome to today's episode of Miyagi Mornings. I believe this is episode 38. That seems right. It is a Wednesday, so it should be an 8, right? This time around, anyway. Um, inside, behind the desk, again, instead of outside in the beautiful world in front of the Miyagi Pond or some other part of the property. And the reason today isn't cold or wind... It's rain. It's raining pretty good out there, and 
Well, rain and electronics do not play well together, even if I don't mind being a wet Jack Spearco. I think my camera might mind being a wet camera, and then even if nothing happens to it, it would make rainy drops all over the thing, and you wouldn't really enjoy the video very much. If you're listening on the Recap Podcast, it's published on Saturday mornings when I don't screw it up. Uh, none of this matters. Anyway, um, but talking about the weather, I do from time to time because that's what friends do, and I consider everybody that follows me and uh, supports what I do to be a friend. So today I went on MeWe, and I said, subjects for the next three Miyagi Mornings videos, which is how many we have less this week, counting this one, Go. And I got a bunch of great ones. Uh, some that I might do this week. Some like there's way more than three, so I can't do them all. The one that hit me and just I was like, I, I really think that would be a great thing to talk about today is somebody asked me what skills I wanted to gain in 2021. And I'm a big person on skills. I even started a website at one time called Save Our Skills, turned it over to somebody to run, and it didn't really go very far after that because, well, you give people an opportunity. Instead of making them work for it, they tend not to capitalize on it. But I'm big on building skill sets. And I decided that since I had like three skills I wanted to, to give you, and that's not much of a list, that I would give you three skills and three goals that I have for myself in 2021. And I think it's important as a leader to set that kind of an example. And I wanted to start out actually today with a funny thing about learning. I consider myself a lifelong learner, and I still struggle with something. And that's why I have the three goals that I have today, because they really require me to kind of start from maybe not square one with them, but like square three or four. It's easy to keep learning about things you already know about. And as we age, that becomes more and more the case because the more you know about a thing, the easier it is to learn the next thing about a thing. But there's a weird reversal that happens when you're young and you're hungry for knowledge and you're humble in the fact that you know you don't know and you're not marketing yourself as an expert either to friends and family or to the world abroad. It's real easy to be humble and say, I don't know Jack Diddley squat about skill ABC, so I can start at zero. As we get older, it's a combination of some level of pride, but I think that's the lesser of the two. The other is the way synapses form in our brain and how we learn changes as we age. And it's very easy to get what all old guys like me say, set in our ways. And I think that just as learning itself is a skill, learning entirely new things is a skill. So it's very different for me to learn more about aquaculture as a thing, which I already have extensive knowledge about, than it is for me to take up something I've never done before and learn about it, even if some of the things I know translate. And that's true for everybody. It's true when you're a little kid, and it's true when you're a grown man. It just it works more against you the older you get, again, set in our ways. So here's three things that I know very little or nothing about that I want to add to my repertoire of skills that I can accomplish in 2021. And they're all either homestead or plant-related. Right? So the first one is plant breeding. You might be thinking, Jack, you know all about plant breeding. No, I know all about seed saving. I know all about natural hybridization. I know about a whole bunch about plants. But I've never done selective, intentional plant breeding in my life. And the place that, inter that like interests me the most about this is one of my favorite things to grow is peppers. I'm known as the pepper whisperer by some friends because they come over here in the summer and they're just like, oh my, there's peppers everywhere, every color of the rainbow. But they're all peppers somebody else developed. 
I do have a jalapeno line that I grow, but that's just seed saving. It's not plant breeding. What I mean by plant breeding is, well, what happens if you take something like a Marconi pepper and a Poblano pepper and cross them? And what happens when you cross them one way versus the other? So uh, pe peppers are a perfect flower. And you, so you have pollen and, 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 and pistol in both. And, or, and, and so you have to actually, it's almost surgical. I've looked at a couple of videos of how you did it, and it seems kind of time-consuming. You have to take the flower apart before it opens and very carefully separate the components. And then what you end up with is pollen in a little Petri dish or something like that. And then you can take that pollen, you can open the other variety and make sure that all the pollen is taken from that flower. Because, again, we have male and female inside the same flower with peppers. It's easier when you have a male and female fruit. And then you apply the pollen to the new plant, and you cover it up with, like, a little bit of foil or something, and you label that with, like, a little twisty tie, and then you see what you get. Now you're going to have what's called an F1 hybrid, which means you've made a single cross. Here's the interesting thing. If you take the pollen from the Marconi to the uh, Poblano, you get a different result than if you take the pollen from the Poblano to the Marconi. Now that's really interesting to me. And I don't think you're thinking, it's hybrids, it's a GMO. No, no, we're not even going to get into GMOs today. But what's interesting to me then is you have two totally different results from a single cross. It's just in opposite directions. Then what happens if we take that resulting F1 hybrid and plant the seeds from that generation, you're going to get some drift, genetic drift, back to your two original peppers, but you're going to get about one-seventh will be what's called true to type. They'll match the new variety, and we can grow that out over four to seven generations and prove it out as a new variety. And then we can take that variety and we can cross it with other things. To me, this is incredibly interesting. It requires some skills that I'm kind of weak on. Patience. I'm not real big on patience, especially with little tiny things. I don't have the best eyes. That's why my one eye always seems to be like off in nowhere land because I'm blind in it. Um, it requires time. It requires extensive record keeping. These are all things I need to beef up on, so what a great skill. Next up is viniculture. What the hell is viniculture? Is that growing vinaramanis? No, viniculture is growing grapes. So I've grown a lot of things in my life. I've never grown and maintained grapes. I pruned grapevines for my grandfather when I was a kid, but those grapevines were 75 years old by the time I touched them. I had nothing to do with their form and shape. And I'm putting in some gardens this year that are designed for perennials, and one component of them will be grapes. And I'll be doing an unconventional method of training grapevines due to the structure, which I can't get into today. But it's still going to require the knowledge of how to thin grapes, uh, leaf stripping uh, when appropriate, uh, back pruning, structure, etc. It's a whole discipline onto itself. So I'll be in, in, embarking on that, and it takes about three years to produce your first good crop of grapes. So it'll be a three-year journey for me, but I'll begin the journey this year in 2021. Next up is solar design and installation. Now, I do know a little bit about this, but I want to take it to another level. I'll at least be doing some projects with backup pumping for my ponds, which is something that's actually really easy to do, and I, I, I probably need about five minutes to look up some parts and I can do it. But I'm thinking about taking it to another level and starting to develop my own solar uh, system for my home this year. And I've got some help with that, and that would be another one that I'll, I'll be working on uh, as well. Now, that's budget 
budget-minded, like it costs money to do that at a larger scale. But we'll do something more with it. Uh, and I do know a little bit about solar, so maybe that one's cheating a bit. But the type of thing I want to do is a whole new level for me. Goals for this year, number one, I want to get my damn book published. I wrote the book. It's been finished since last year. It's been edited. It's ready to go. I need to get it formatted and printed and out the door. It's called Laws of Life, uh, and I need to get that done. I've kind of pigeonholed myself to where it's imperative that a website that goes along with it comes out first. So I need to just get off my rear end and, and build out that website and get that book out the door because it's basically ready to go. It's over 60,000 words. It's my treatise on how to live life on your own terms and how to live life in a way that will build you prosperity. Uh, next up, I want to develop a crypto-only side business that's in progress with a friend. And uh, so I want a website that you can go to and you can buy something from. And the only thing you can do if you want to buy stuff there is spend cryptocurrency or you don't get nothing. Because I want to kind of stand behind my principle that this is the way going forward to enable trade between individuals and getting third parties out of the equation. Because the third parties in these situations are the banks and they're not your friends. And goal three, I want to create some sort of permaculture training course. A lot of people have been on me to come out with my own PDC or permaculture design course. I think there's plenty of those and plenty of options. And my actual issue with permaculture design courses is they're so designed to be global, globally applicable that they often seem to me to have too much information on certain biomes that most people are never going to work in, uh, and lack of resources that most people probably won't experience, and not enough focus on things like, well, what the hell do I plant in my climate um, coming out of Australia, and specifically the subtropics and tropics, depending on exactly where in Australia you are, there's a lot of focus on things that people look at and go, I don't, I can't grow that. And that's, it's not really a critique of PDCs, just also a hell of a lot of y'all have already taken one. But I've been thinking about putting something together that's maybe more uh, a PPC, a practical permaculture course designed for people on... Anything from an urban property to, to small to mid-size acreage up to about five acres and how to actually do things that are directly beneficial to you from a permaculture perspective, more for the person that wants to design their property and make their property better than somebody wants to go out and do it as a consultant for somebody else. So there you go. Those are my three skills and three goals for 2021. This is what I want from you. You knew it was coming, didn't you? How about down there in the video comments, you tell me the skills you want to develop in 2021 that you'll commit to right now. You're going to get it done and any goals that you have for 2021 as well. And don't cheap out and be like, my goal of 2021 is to survive it, right? You're going to get through it. We're going to help you do that. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. I'll be coming back to you two more times this week. And remember, you can catch the recap episode on Saturday mornings on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast services. Hey, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode, what, 39, something like that, right? Anyway, uh, today, what are we going to talk about? Uh, this goes from my post yesterday on MeWe, and uh, there was a ton of stuff that came in for ideas for Miyagi Mornings. And one was, what's brewing? And this is the time of year that the individual in question is making stuff, and I'll tell you a little bit about things I like to make um, as we do this video, so I'll answer that question as well. But I'm really going to talk more about the entire concept of small batch mead 
wine, and cider making. And my favorite out of all of those is mead. And as you'll hear today, there's some reasons for that as far as production capacity when doing small batch. So I want to start out with the fact that I do have a small batch method of, of mead and wine and, and cider making. Originally, it came to me from a gentleman named Michael Jordan, who's still on my expert council. He's known as the Bee Whisperer. But I've modified it actually quite a bit. I think that the method I use is vastly improved. And explaining it in a, a short video like this is not really practical. So in the video notes, I have for you a playlist uh, called Meads of the Week that I did for about five weeks. It starts out with exactly how to make mead. I've even modified that method a little bit since then. I'll tell you some stuff on that, but I'm going to give you three podcasts that I've done on the subject that give you basically more information you would ever need to be able to make these small batch things. I also want to start a little bit about why I'm talking about this today beyond just, hey, it's a cool thing to do. It is an agorist opportunity. Now, of course, it's illegal for you to be in the business of making and producing alcohol without a license for resale. But I'm just going to say that there are ways to circumnavigate that little issue. And, uh, you know, if you give somebody some of your homemade stuff, it's completely a kosher to do that as a gift. And if they happen to give you a gift that's not actually related to it, then that is what it is. And what this makes me think of is the, the, the master winemaker from my history is a gentleman named Buddy Shoemaker. I grew up about 500 yards south of where he, uh, he lived. And uh, I'm sure he's passed on by now, but he was one of the most popular people in the whole damn county. And he's literally like a re... He's like... he. Is, if you've ever heard the song Dust on the Bottle and hear Cleo Wilson in there, there's a guy that he goes to see to find the wine. He was that dude, man. And he he had his little thing going. And, and the way he did it, he uh, let you bring him stuff to make you know wine out of. So I would take uh, grapes from my grandfather's 75-year-old grapevines up to him every year, and my grandfather would get a bunch of wine. He'd just keep some of it. Now, there's always a way. And I'll tell you, that dude had some social capital. There is no way that that man ever wanted for anything in his life, even though he did not have a ton of money. I mean, he there's and if, any, if he had never needed anything, somebody would have helped him. And if you needed something, and Buddy was your friend, with a phone call, you got the help you needed. There's a lot of value in that. So that's one thing. The next thing is avoiding taxes. I am not a fan of government. Many of y'all know that. I'm not political. I'm anti-political. I don't participate in the Ask Clown Circus. Y'all call it voting. Um, but I don't believe that it's right for the state to take my money. And the truth is when you go down to the store and you buy yourself a nice bottle of wine or meat or cider or beer or uh, you know distilled spirits, which you can also make even though you're not supposed to, just saying, people do it, um, a tremendous amount of what you're spending is in taxes that go to the state. And when you make your own, you circumvent that taxation system. By the way, that's completely legal as well, as long as you're making alcohol that's legal to make. And things like wines and ciders and beers, it's completely okay and legal to make in the United States. Your country, if you're not here, check your own laws. Some of you have much more freedom when it comes to this than we do, like freedom in distilling. Uh, next, I want to kind of drive home to you, if you'll learn my small batch method, because people say, you only make it a gallon. Yeah, but it's a time issue. In less than 30 minutes, I can make a new batch of meat or wine or cider. I can rack, which is moving from the first fermenter to the second fermenter to allow clearing out uh, another gallon. And I can bottle a third gallon, so it's staged. So maybe week one, you make a batch. Week two, maybe about week five, you're going to be ready to go ahead and go to a secondary fermenter with your first batch. So now you're going to make that batch and rack. 
and maybe two weeks after that you're going to make a batch, rack a batch, and bottle a batch. I can do all that in 30 minutes since it's small batch and one-gallon jugs. Um, you can do it over your sink, in your sink, and my wife always said it's not spilling if it's in the sink. It doesn't count. Uh, it's really easy and really fast, and I do all my sanitation with hot tap water. That's it. It's all my grandfather had. They weren't dumping Clorox into their bottles or anything like that. For bottles, my favorite bottles are I have, you know, whenever I drink wine that's got a screw cap, and some good wines come with screw caps, folks. It's not, it's not 1980 anymore. It's not only Mad Dog 2020. It's not just Morgan David that has a cap on it. Some of the best wines out of South Africa and Australia come with a cap, and there's good reason behind it. Um, but I won't get into that today. But if you can get people to save those for you and what have you, I just bottle straight into those and go on with life. Put, rinse them out with hot water, rinse the cap out with hot water, put the cap on it, throw a label on it, and gone. I know some of y'all make really fancy labels and have foil and corkers. and all. You want to do that? It's fine. It's great. My point is this can be really easy, and I want you to think about it this way. Once you get my system rolling of small batch, one gallon a batch, 30 minutes a week, if you're doing all three, a gallon a week is 52 gallons a year with tremendous variety all put up and stored, long-term, aged out, great stuff. It's a cool thing to do. It just really is. Um, I also want to real quick give you how to get a full gallon. There's a couple ways to do this. With meads, I just use three pounds to the gallon, and you're not going to fill your one-gallon fermenter all the way to the top because if you do, it's going to overflow when it ferments. So when I do a mead, I'm just using that heavy amount, three, gallon, three pounds to the gallon. When I rack to my secondary, I just go to my Berkey and get enough water to top that secondary fermenter to the top. That gives me a full gallon of mead from that batch, which is going to give me five 750-milliliter bottles, a fifth is a seven. That's why they call it that, right? So that's going to give me five bottles, and I would say those bottles have to be valued at at least $20 a bottle. If you bought anything equivalent from a store, that means I can produce $100 worth of meads and ciders and sizers, et cetera, a week. I'm not saying I'm selling them. I'm just saying that's about how much I can make only working 30 minutes a week. And a lot of the material that you get, you can get from your backyard for no money, et cetera. So it's, it's a profitable enterprise, and most people aren't going to drink anywhere near that much. I'm not even saying I make that much. I'm just saying you could. Um, as far as some of my favorites, people have been asking about this for a long time. My favorite mead is a mead that I believe that I have created, that, that no one has ever made anything quite like it before. It's a methylogen, which means it's a mead that, that's, that's, uh, that has herbs added to it, right? And it's called Three Flowers Blend. And I use three different flowers in it in a sizable amount. And they are elderflower, uh, chamomile, and heatherflower. The heatherflower is the most expensive one and the hardest to get. Uh, but it brings a bitterness. If you don't like IPAs, don't take this the wrong way. But Three Flowers Blend is to mead what IPA is to ale. It really is. But it's not that kind of a thing. It doesn't taste like a pine cone. I'm not a big fan of IPAs. But it is this kind of radically different style that a lot of people that don't enjoy meads really enjoy. And I always ferment with a combination of two yeasts. I'll make sure that the link to find those yeasts is available here. And I go to a very dry, fully fermented, fully attenuated mead. And that's what I prefer. You can use other yeasts if you want. Next, apricot. I'm not a fan of apricots, but I'm growing apricots now because apricot meat is one of the most beautiful things that you can create. And an apricot 
uh, apple cider is actually pretty delicious as well. Uh, blackberry, uh, blackberry meads can, in my opinion, can compete with really great red wines. And, uh, cucumber mint. Cucumber mint. Now, my basic formula for making small batch meads is really simple. People are like, well, how do I make the blackberry? How do I? So with the three flowers blend, that's, that's three quarters of a cup of the three flowers blend, and it's equal amounts of the flowers. When you do fruit, I don't care if it's cherry, blackberry, apple, whatever, I use two cups of fruit chopped up, not ground up, it's just kind of chopped up. If they're berries just thrown in, two, uh, I'm sorry, a pound. I use a pound of fruit to the gallon. So if I'm doing cherry, cherry mead, I use a pound of cherries to the gallon. If I'm doing uh, apple, and I'm not using apple juice to make a true size, or I'm making an apple-infused mead, I use a pound of chopped up apple to the gallon. I just throw it in the fermenter, put a little hot water on top of it to, to, sand it, to, uh, to uh, pasteurize it initially, and then I go through the rest of my process. You can watch how I do it. And it's, it's very, very simple. And that way, well, I'm going to make a blank mead, but throw a pound in there to the gallon. It's really, really simple, and, and it gets a great infusion. Um, again, I have links to pretty much everything you need to know to be able to do this. And you can go listen to the three podcasts. Uh, they are Making Dead Simple Cider, Mead, and Fruit Wines, uh, Small Batch Mead, Cider, and Fruit Wine Q&A, where I answered all the questions that came from that. And about a year later after that, I did another look at Small Batch Mead, where that one I bring in a lot of the things that I've developed over the years with it. This is a great hobby. It opens up a lot of opportunity for trade and barter. I think that's going to be critical over the next decade. Uh, we do not have to even, we can be in the gray market without ever going fully black here, guys. There's lots of ways that you can leverage this skill set uh, without breaking the law. And there's a lot of ways that you can break laws without going to jail. And I'll leave it to you to figure out from there. Um, but this is a great thing to do, a great thing to get involved with. Uh, if you don't have your own bees, reach out to local uh, apiary managers. Get your local honey. It's amazing what a difference that makes. But if you just want to give it a shot, there's nothing wrong with going down to Costco and getting some clover honey and make a batch. Give this a try. As far as speed, like I said, you can take about a month and a half. As you get better and if you use my methods, you'll see that I, I can make a complete batch of mead in under 30 days. It still does well to age, but there's so many advantages to this small batch. The last one I'll give you before we leave. When you go into that secondary fermenter, you transfer over, you top it off, and uh, it's done, but it's still got a little activity. Unlike that great big five-gallon carboy, that one-gallon jug goes right in the refrigerator to cold crash it. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another episode of Miyagi Morning. So if you guys enjoyed it, I'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week. Hey folks, Jack Spierko here with episode 40 of Miyagi Mornings. I hope to be outside today. The weather is uh, cooperative. It's chilly, but it's overcast. It's good lighting for shooting, and it's not that cold or windy, but there's like squadrons of freaking aircraft flying over my house, and it's made it impossible. So after three times of, uh, of starting this and being so overrun with noise, I came inside to do it for you so you could hear it. So our question today we're answering comes from MeWe. I really recommend if you use social media, you get on me. Well, they're a company that respects your privacy. It's one thing to talk about uh, freedom of speech, but how about just respecting your privacy? MeWe does that. The blue companies do not. Anyway, a person said, how can I grow my own hybrid chickens for meat production so I'm not reliable, relying on a factory to produce them or a hatchery to produce them for me so I can close off that 
that input dependency. I like that you're thinking about closing off the input dependency, but you're probably not thinking about it the right way. The Cornish cross chickens that we use today are a multi-generation hybrid that comes from four separate breeds. And when you finally get down to that final chicken that grows so fast, produces those big double breasts, etc., um, you have a chicken that is so malformed and grows so fast and is so much of a mutant that it, it really is the chicken that you're a horrible person if you, if, you, if you let it live too long. And it doesn't reproduce with its own kind very well. And it, you, it's, it's kind of like breeding Quasimodos or something. You don't need to be doing it. And, and the hatcheries that produce them, they don't do it either. They, they get down to uh, parental lineage, and then they're producing these birds, a lot of times using even artificial insemination techniques and things like that, which you're not going to do. So if you really need or really want birds that are going to go from the brooder to the freezer in 8 to 12 weeks and be large and plump and sort of uniform, then you're going to buy Cornish crosses. You just are. And that's not a bad thing. It just is, it's a reality. Uh, no, nobody produces them for themselves. It's, it's such a specialized thing. Even big producers get their birds from those hatcheries, right? So the way we need to come at this is a little bit different. Let's just kind of, kind of go through the time machine and go back to the pre-existence of this bird. And what did people do? And, and, and there were a lot of like Delaware rock cross. And that's not a bad cross. But in the end, what, all you're doing there is taking two heavy breed birds and crossing them and getting some hybrid vigor out of it. Well, that's what you can do. You, you pick either a heavy breed and you make it your primary chicken breed, or you pick two heavy breeds, and then your offspring from that have some hybrid vigor, and uh, you, you get a little bit of accelerated growth rate. But you're not going to get anything approaching what you get from a Cornish cross, or commercial, commercial producers would do it. But if we're producing for our backyard, what we need to do is get our mind out of the mindset that the commercial producer has. The commercial producer would just simply ask you, if I can produce a chicken in eight weeks, why should I take 16? Why should I have to feed it almost twice as much, keep it twice as long, and make twice, the, and twice less the money? And I'm not going to kick big ag today. And I understand, and that's why even a lot of people do pasture poultry, etc., that do things a hell of a lot better than that, rely on Cornish crosses or heritage whites, which are kind of the predated version of the same bird that you're also not going to produce for yourself. But you don't live in that world, right? If, if, you're, if you're trying to grow backyard poultry for your family to eat and try to get meat and eggs, go and do what your grandparents did, which is heavy breed birds, Brahmas. Cochins, um, Sussex, Delawares, uh, New Hampshire Reds, like any of the, the big heavy breeds, Orpingtons are one of the best. And they're also a great bird to work with as far as crossing with other heavy breeds. So uh, wide net, so a wide net rooster crossed to an Orpington hen uh, gets a pretty good backyard barnyard chicken, right? And then we're going to harvest our surplus cockerels and, and to a lesser extent our surplus pullets when they're fairly young. And we're going to use those. We're not going to get anywhere the meat yield in return for the feed inputs, which I'll get to in a second, uh, that we would for a Cornish cross. But we get a pretty good frying chicken. 
You can fry, you can de-breast, and you can make enchiladas out of it and all that stuff. And most people should be able to get about two meals for their family per chicken. If you're talking about a family of four and you're doing sides and all that. Me, I can eat a whole damn chicken myself. right? So it depends on how it works out for you. Okay, now, the other thing we can look at are birds that, like, what was the gold standard for meat production before all of these hybrids and crosses? And it was the Jersey Giant. And people shy off the Jersey Giant because to get, like, full potential, you're looking at 9 to 10 months. That's a long time to keep birds around. But... I'm not, if, if you're going to grow a breed that, that, you know, you harvest at about six and a half, seven pounds, you have a Jersey Giant cockerel that can get up to 13. I don't care how long it takes them to get to 13 if I want to harvest a seven pound bird. The thing about them, though, you're kind of wasting them if you do that because they build their frame and then they put on the muscle. That's kind of the growth with it, which kind of makes sense. That's why they don't break their legs when they're, you know, that big. Uh, they also can't fly worth a darn. They really can't. I mean, they can fly up a little bit. They don't like to fly real high up because jumping down can hurt them. If you have Jersey Giants, you want to kind of put um, roosts in around two and a half, three foot high. Just because if they, even if you can give them steps to get up, if they choose not to use them going down, they can hurt their legs because they're so big. Um, that means they're easy to keep out of things, especially if you do a wing clip on them and what have you. And they're really a great bird to look at. I've never done any hybridization like crossbreeding like a Jersey Giant Hen to a smaller breed like a Sussex or an Orpington, but I think that might be interesting to do. I would probably consider going hen to rooster from the Jersey Giant Hen to the off-breed rooster. I would be a little concerned with some of the smaller hens being bred by a giant freaking Jersey Giant bird. So uh, there is that. They're calm, and they're probably... For the average person, one of the best backyard poultry you can get because they're also up there with any of them for egg laying. They lay as many eggs as a dedicated egg layer. They are the best dual-purpose bird there is if you're patient. Now, there's two reasons that commercial producers aren't patient. One, time is money, but the other is time is feed and feed is money. If you're reducing your inputs, if you're getting your birds a significant amount of their feed from your land, if you're growing feed for your birds, if you're sprouting grains and sprouting sunflower seeds and things like that, so you're reducing your overall feed bill, you care about that a lot less, don't you? And you need to start thinking from a mindset of, well, how much do I really need to produce? If you want to produce 50 birds a run doing chicken tractors or 25 birds with a tractor, use Cornish crosses. If you're a backyard chicken guy, right, chicken gal, you probably need to produce for the average family about 20 to 25 birds a year. Because each bird, especially with like a Jersey Giant, is going to give you two meals minimum. With Jersey Giant, you should be getting three, maybe four, depending on your family and what you eat with it. So if you can produce 25 of them, you can pretty much have um, two meals of chicken every other week from your backyard. That's significant in reducing your dependency on out, outside meat inputs. Plus you get stock, plus you get skin, plus you get fat, you get all these other products, plus you get eggs. Because, they are again, they are a fantastic and large egg layer. It takes more time to get that machine running, but once that machine's running, it doesn't really matter how long it takes because we're talking about a backyard flock, not a commercial chicken farm, right? Now, the bird that I think is the best meat option for the least amount of work is highly underrated in this country, and it's native to this continent anyway, it's the Muscovy duck. 
Muscovies taste like beef. Most delicious beef you'll ever eat. They're like flying little cows. They're very gentle on the land. They don't mess things up. As, and I love ducks. You guys know I'm a duck farmer, right? And I have a lot of ducks. And right now I don't have any Muscovies. I'm going to rectify that this spring and bring Muscovies back here for many of the reasons I'm giving you right now. Um, the only thing you must do with Muscovies is you must clip their wings. If you do not clip a Muscovy's wings, you will learn that Muscovy's fly. And I don't mean the way we think of chickens or domestic ducks flying you know, up over a fence. I mean like away, like soaring in the breeze. And that's because they are a wild migratory duck. They are We use them as domestic birds, but there is no difference between the Muscovy's we keep in the backyard, except maybe some colors that we've bred in and out of them, um, and uh, the wild Muscovy's that live in southern Mexico and Central America, that live in the jungle. They're a jungle fowl. They're actually, in many ways, more closely related to geese than they are to mallard ducks. Great bird. Broody. They will raise babies, and they don't care what the eggs are made of, right? So if you put chicken eggs under a Muscovy, she will hatch them and take care of them. Um, when they go broody, you almost can't get them to come off of brood. Uh, they need to hatch something or they'll sit there until they damn near die. So you got to think about that too, though. They're going to want to make babies. But that means that you don't have to brood. Like you, most chickens, sometimes chickens go broody, especially cochins. That's why I like them as a dual-purpose bird. But muscovies will go broody. If you, have a, if you have a group of four muscovy hens, at least one of them every year is going to go super broody. And all you need to do then is keep all the other birds away from her once you've decided she has enough eggs. Because if you don't, they will keep putting eggs underneath her and you'll have all your eggs out of time and she won't be able to take care of them all. And getting into brood, you know, taking care of broody mothers is something we can't do today. But I'm just going to tell you, if you do that and you harvest your excess uh, hens, you're going to be harvesting birds about the size of a mid-sized chicken with your girls. Drakes, Muscovy drakes, by the end of the season, even first year, are big birds. You're talking birds with a, a live weight somewhere in 12 pounds and up, and older Muscovy males will get up into the 15 to 16 pound range. The breasts on them are huge, and it is like one of the most beautiful prime pieces of beef you will ever eat. So if I really want to do backyard meat production from poultry, I'm probably going to do an integrated crop of ducks and chickens, and I'm probably going to include muscovies in the mix. That's my perspective on this. I often say if something is dual purpose, it usually excels at neither purpose. And that's true, but I don't think it means we shouldn't use dual purpose birds. Because, yes, the Jersey Giant does not excel at meat production. It actually does a really good job, though, and it actually kind of does excel at egg production. So it's it's one of those exceptions. And your larger your larger breeds, again, your Brahmas, your Koshans. I mean, I think if, if I had to do this and you just made me pick, like you're going to have one or two chicken breeds, what would you do? I would probably go with Brahma cockerels and uh, Orpington or Sus. I'm sorry, uh, Cochin, uh, Cochin hens. Because the Cochins have a real good chance of becoming broody for me, at least one or two of them out of the group. And so that's probably where I would go, or I'd go straight Cochin. Cochin rooster, Cochin birds. You know, and they have advantages and disadvantages either way. Anyway, I've enjoyed this week of Miyagi Mornings. Hope it brought you a lot of variety. Remember, we do publish a podcast on Saturday morning with all of the Miyagi Mornings from the week into a single audio podcast. Or you can share these videos with friends and family that aren't ready for a full podcast just yet. Take care, guys, and let me know what you want to hear next week 
on Miyagi Morning. Send me an email, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC Miyagi in the subject line, and that will make sure that I see it and know it's for Miyagi Mornings. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.